0: Welcome into episode 23 of the Five Reasons Podcast. Thank you for finding us. Also, you can go back in our library, look at previous episodes, a lot of which still apply. Just posted one on the Dwayne Wade effect on the Miami Heat with the Miami Heralds' Manny Navarro. Today, we are joined by an old friend, Chris Whittingham, and I used to do a radio show with Chris Perkins in the afternoon. He is still on 7 the ticket, also covers the Dolphins and other sports for the Sun Sentinel. He has been known to provide really good sports takes, a little bit outside of the box sometimes. Perk, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey, uh, you know what? Here, here's what I'm wondering today. Who is more accurate, the Vegas sports book or your local weatherman?
2: What sort of created this thought for you, Perk? Why Why, why were you thinking about this?
1: Why? it's just a random rambling. <laughs> <I don't> know, <laughs> my, my mind is all like, over the place, but I, that's just something that I wonder. I think we need to...
0: I think we need a culture change on the podcast uh, here today. <laughs> I, to, I think to, to get ourselves to get ourselves started, uh, and, and that's where we're going to start this thing today, Perk. Because we, we'll talk weather another time, but I think we're going to do Dolphins today, and 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 that's kind of where before I get into part one of this thing. That's kind of how I'm going to frame a lot of this stuff today is these reports that have come out since the decision that was made and, and was leaked out to some reporters that the Dolphins were going to be releasing. Sioux, the decision to trade Jarvis Landry to Cleveland, uh, arguably the, the most recognizable players on offense and defense for the Dolphins. And the way that this has been framed now in the media, where you have a number of media members who've come out and said the Dolphins are trying to process a culture change in their locker room, which is a nice way of saying that these weren't very good guys to work with, whether it's and Sue or Jarvis Landry or go back to Jay Ajayi during the season. Before we sort of get into the specifics of Sue and Landry here, I just want to get your thoughts on the locker room itself, Perk. I mean, did this organization – I mean, you're, you're around these guys every day. Did this organization need a culture
1: change, do you think? I I don't think so. When I hear the phrase culture change, and, and this is whether it's in Washington, whether it's in college football, or whether it's in the NFL, to me that means give me some time. What I was doing before wasn't working, or what was going on here before wasn't working. Whether I was in charge of it or not, it wasn't working, so give me some time. And I think that's what we're witnessing here with the Dolphins. Look. These were predominantly the same guys who went 10 and six the previous year. And then they go down to six and 10. And the previous year, you think you have this big culture change, right? I mean, Adam Gase comes in firing Dallas Thomas. You're gone. Billy Turner. You're gone. Jameel Douglas. You're gone. Byron Maxwell and, and Mario Williams get demoted. And it's the tough Adam Gase. There's a new sheriff in town. Things will be done this way. And, and, so we went into last off season thinking, wow, Gase has really straightened out this locker room. Now, all of a sudden, a year later, you're hearing, know, oh, we need a culture change. I think that's just code for what I had going on before did not work. So give me some time to flip things around. And I think that's really what's at the basis of this. Now, Look, the the Landry and the Sue moves, to me, were mostly financial, right? I mean, these were talented players. Everybody knows that they were talented players. If they came at a lower cost, the Dolphins would have kept them. But for what they contributed and what they were able to do, a slot receiver and a defensive tackle, I think the Dolphins finally realized we can't pay these guys this much money. They aren't making that big of a difference. So now you've got a culture change. But I... I really think that's all it is. It's it's an admission without quite admitting what we were doing before was not working.
2: But to me, Perk, when you normally see players getting trashed out the door, it it always came with no sign of internal criticism or external criticism of the players from the team. But here's where I, I would disagree with that point. Adam Gase was banging on all year about players just need to do their job. Players just need to follow instruction. I mean, he was really self-critical over the course of the first half of the year. Kind of toned it down as the year went on. And perhaps all along, he was talking about Jarvis Landry and Dombokinsu. We were always trying to pick out who Adam Gase was talking about when Adam Gase was excoriating his team in public. And so normally I would say, well, hang on a minute. You're just doing this after the fact because now you don't have to confront these people face-to-face Anymore, but Adam GaSe could have been doing it face to face all year long, and certainly was doing it via the press in public. So I don't think this is just well. Now that he's not on our team anymore, we're just gonna we're just gonna trash these guys in public. I really do think that he, both in public and in private, was probably pretty well communicating these issues with everybody.
1: Well, you know what, Chris? That might have been, but those guys rarely came up. Like they they never talked about suit publicly. The only thing that Adam Gase said about Jarvis publicly during the season was that he considered himself, Jay Ajayi, and, and Jarvis the three hotheads of the offense. You remember that that yeah. little thing that, that uh, he talked about? And then, of course, Jay Ajayi was gone. But his whipping boys early in the season was the offensive line. I mean, Gase was all over that offensive line. And then it just kind of degenerated into general criticism of the team, then the Jay Ajay scene comes out. He actually names Jay Adai and and soon after that, um, he gets traded. But he he never mentioned Sue or or Jarvis by name. The only thing he said about Jarvis really was in the postseason media session when he talked about his um, his ejection in the in the season finale. So, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I I don't well it's not I'm not sure I don't I don't really buy the culture change from the standpoint that the locker room was a problem i think again jarvis and Indominus sue were just too expensive and to make this departure more palatable you talk badly about them as 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 they're on their way out the door that you know we really didn't have the right mix of people and indirectly blaming some of the team leaders now i, I don't know what this says for brian Tannehill and, and some of the other guys but I'm not really believing the culture change. I think it's just give me some time.
2: My question to you, Ethan, would be, do you think this works on the public? Because I think the Dolphins, if we're having a credibility battle between Jarvis Landry and Dominican Sue against the Dolphins, I think even Dolphins fans are siding with those players. So why do you think these teams continue to do this? If it's the Patriots, that's one thing. But a team without that kind of organizational credibility, I'm not sure I get that.
0: Yeah, it's really strange to me, Chris. I don't get it why you would do this. I also think it makes you a little bit less attractive to players down the line. Because, I mean, if, you, if you're if you a player who thinks they're going to give everything to the organization, there's already enough distrust between management and players in the NFL. And then, ad- additionally, to have management leaking to reporters that that they needed something different in the locker room, not just because these were not the players that they needed, but, but because they weren't the people that they needed or they, they weren't the workers that they needed. I think it's a really strange strategy. I don't know, and we're going to get into these guys in more depth here over the course of the pod, but I don't know that Mike Tannenbaum in particular, but also Adam Gase, have established enough credibility in this town where their word's going to be taken as gospel at, at this stage, particularly when you're talking about two guys who were, uh, you know, cornerstones of the team. Now, Sue was not as popular with the fans as Landry because he, first thing he doesn't play as flashy a position, and second thing he doesn't have that kind of personality. But these were two really very different personalities that they seem to be sort of undercutting here on their way out the door. One, you know, very fiery in Landry, where the issue it seemed with Landry was that he was too fiery, right? Like that was that was one of the problems that the team had. And then with Sue, where the issue was he wasn't enough of a leader. So. It, they had a problem with two different guys, and the other thing about this, Chris, is it comes on the heels of Joe Philbin struggling with strong personalities and cleaning out what his whole leadership council. So it, it makes it look like you're doing the same thing again. I, I want to transition now as we go into deeper dive on some of these topics. Um, number one here, let, let's go a little deeper onto the Andamac and Sioux era with the Dolphins. Um, at Perk, you talk about his play. And we talked on the radio show a little bit about how he was trying to become more of a leader. He'd even become a little bit more open with the media over the past year. Maybe that's because he's trying to get in the hall of fame. Who knows? My issue with, with Sue perk was not, was he very good at his position because clearly he was and and all the metrics back that up, but that someone at his position in the modern NFL simply can't have enough of an overall impact on the defense. And I think that's what we saw that even if you take up a double team are not running up the middle like they used to if they're using shorter passing games than they used to a guy like that's not going to be able to generate pass rush and not going to have the effect as a total defense as you would if teams were pounding the rock you know up the middle you know 30 times a game what did you think of his play overall and and are you okay with moving on from him right now and moving on from that contract
1: i thought his play was good i mean that's his play was, was really, really strong. He did, like you said, he did everything that they asked of him. The only problem was you're paying him too much money. And this could be a, a cautionary tale with uh, Aaron Donald also for any team uh, that is looking to acquire him in the, in the future current team or future team that there's only so much control a defensive tackle can have over the game. And like you said, you've got all these quick passing games and and this isn't the the seventies and eighties where you're pounding the rock and that defensive tackle can control that running game. And, and by that, he can kind of control your offensive strategy. It's more of a passing game It's more of a short passing game. Sue does not have the opportunity to get to the quarterback the way he would have decades ago. Now, um, having said that again, I have zero problem with Indomitian Sue's performance. It was the cost. Of that performance, where you come to the issue. And the big thing here is what are they going to do with the money that they get from Indomit and Sue and Jarvis Landry?
2: The reason why these moves were made, and individually they can kind of make sense. Is that Indomik and is not a unit changing player. Just like I think, from an offensive perspective, there may be five receivers in the league that you can say you know can turn around a quarterback. You know, AJ Green can make Andy Dalton look better than he is. I don't think Jarvis Landry is one of those players. I think Odell Beckham and Julio Jones are those kinds of players that can you sort of change the entire perspective of the offense. Just as I think there are very select few defensive players that can do that. I think you know Von Miller can kind of be. Described as one, The very best corners in the league can be described as that, but I don't think that there's you know, more than five on that side of the ball either, and we thought Ndamukong Sioux was going to be that for the Dolphins. It's why you could justify paying that amount of money, but I think the Dolphins had to have looked around and, and went, our defense isn't good. And we need a lot more than one defensive tackle to fix this. We need three or four more quality players. And so we're going to reinvest this $17 million that we're going to save this year and turn it into... A different cast of players that can help our team become better because I think you look at the current situation with the Dolphins' defense. They have so many holes. They have so many places where you look at that position and go, are, "Are we really comfortable with what we have there?" And they need to continue to add on that side of the ball. Last year, damn near their whole draft was on defense, and they might have to not if not do that again. At the very least, add three or four more players that you feel like can contribute from day one, whether that's free agency or whether that's the draft. They need a lot more on defense, and so I think they. Needed that money from Indominus Sue in order to do that.
0: Let me pose this question to you guys Uh, Does it matter to you that he was not sort of your fiery leader when you're paying somebody that much money? I mean, does that player have to be a Ray Lewis type? Because it seems like Sue was never kind of comfortable in in a role of being anything other than a leader by example to the other defensive tackles and I mean did he have a positive effect on Jordan Phillips and 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 some of the other ones they have there and does it matter if someone's getting paid that kind of money that they're the face of the franchise in the locker
2: room with the community and all of that for me but this is a personal perspective right I don't particularly need people to lead me I don't need people to motivate me I motivate myself that's my own personal way of being but I do think that in the culture of sports, in the culture of a locker room, in the culture of football in particular... There are people who value these things, and there is a reason why they bring in motivational speakers and sports psychologists and why there are people that value Like, I, I've talked to Channing Crowder, uh, working for WQAM, and he thinks it's a load of nonsense too, but perhaps there are people in the room who do find some value in it, so there, there perhaps is a void in having one of your top players not be one of those guys. To me, though, the flip side is Jarvis Landry, who is very much one of those guys and I'm not sure there was much of a tangible impact from that. So I think you have kind of both ends of the spectrum and personality in these two. And I personally don't particularly think it makes that big of an impact, but perhaps to people in that room, it does. Well, I, I
0: look at the defensive leaders that the Dolphins have had in the past and, and the teams that I covered, you know, they had a core four guys with Jason Taylor, Zach Thomas, Patrick Sertan and Sam Madison, and all of them. Led in different ways. And yet the best leader of that group, if you talk to those guys, might have been Tim Bowens just from the way that he, he sort of went about his business. And he never said anything to the media. I mean, you know, Perk, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, he did to you. Yep. He, li- he, li- he liked you. He liked me after he, st- he finished playing. But Bowens wasn't the guy that kind of stood out to people as a rah-rah leader. But when Tim talked Those guys listened. JT listened to him. Zach listened to him. And those guys also made sure to praise him at every turn for, you know, the way that he made their jobs easier. And so I I don't think it has to be one guy or the obvious guy necessarily or the highest paid guy that everybody else looks to. But I did think, you know, that Dominick and Sue, when you're given that kind of contract at that position, it's going to be difficult for you to be an outspoken leader playing defensive tackle when a lot of what you do goes unseen, right? Like the average fan doesn't see it. But I did think that there was a chance for him to do more, maybe, in that area that he didn't. But you mentioned it, Chris, and I want to get to number two here quickly, which is Jarvis Landry, who's the polar opposite here. And the Dolphins seem to have a problem with that also, right? Like, I mean, you mentioned the Adam Gase comments about the ejection in the last game of the season. And I thought that was a total overreaction from Gase, considering the fact that that game meant nothing. To the Dolphins at all. And I know you're trying to create a culture, but um, it was better to lose that game than to win that game. And, and not only that, the Dolphins acted like they were trying to lose that game because they pulled Jake Cutler out after one series. So the idea that Gase got so worked up over Landry, you know, getting ejected from from that game. There must have been a lot more going on, Perk, during the year with his irritation with Landry, because I can't imagine it was just over that moment.
1: No, no, it wasn't over just that moment. And I think that was just setting the stage for the inevitable, what they felt was an inevitable parting of ways uh, of Jarvis Landry. Because, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, that wasn't a big deal. Um, okay, so so you had a chance to go 7-9 and nine instead of 6-10. and 10. Who cares, right? It, it was still a disaster of a season from from many standpoints. I think from a culture standpoint, Jarvis Landry is, is kind of what you would. I mean – and and you can't you can't really tell me that these two guys had that much influence on the rest of that locker room when you have a lot of other veteran leaders and veteran players, right? I'll just name Ryan Tannehill and Rashad Jones as a couple, right? Can't wait. Where are they when you're talking about culture change and and why are they still around if if things were so bad? I mean, are you are you really just gonna think that it was it was two guys that were that led to this team going six and 10 and those same two guys were instrumental in the team going 10 and six. I just, you know, all, all of the uh, kind of the name calling and all that stuff. I think that was just setting the stage to save a little bit of face when, and if that inevitable parting of ways game, whether it was Sue or Landry and I'll tell you something else about culture change. And juice, you mentioned this before with the, with the leadership council, how many culture changes have we had in the Ryan Tannehill era, right? Because right. there was the Leadership Council culture change with Danby and Jake Long and, and Reggie Bush and all of them. Then you had the bully scandal, and that was a culture change with Richie Incognito and John Jerry going. Then you had Adam Gase cutting the three players and, and benching Byron Maxwell and Mario Williams. And now we're at another culture change? I mean, the, Tannehill must be confused as to what the heck he signed up for, right? It's this, it's just this kind of whirlwind of culture change, and that that's why I never believed that that term. I, I just think it's what we were doing was wrong. We messed up. Give us some time to flip this roster.
2: My question would be, what is the culture that they're looking for? I mean, if they're constantly changing it, what was it before and what is it now that they're trying to accomplish? And I always kind of thought that you know Jarvis Landry that what happened with him wasn't just isolated to that buffalo game. he toes that line in every game that he's played over the course of time, and again, if you want to voice an objection, voice it in the moment because he you know has drawn personal foul penalties, he's always getting into it with other players. I've never particularly liked it that much. I think it was always just trying to be the the dog that barks the loudest, but I don't know if that actually means anything in the context of an NFL game, but I just would like to know. What is the culture that the the Dolphins are striving for? What is their organizational broader plan to try and be a quality organization? I don't know what it is that their culture is even attempting to be. So this whole idea that they're changing and they're getting rid of bad culture, guys, I don't think we've really seen a clear outlay of what it is that they're going for. And who it is that they're trying to bring in. What it is they're trying to be as a football team. I'd like to know that. And I, I just don't think we see it clearly or often enough from the Miami Dolphins.
1: Well, I, I'll say that's also. And you're exactly right, Whittingham. Because when you, when you talk about culture in sports, it's usually associated with winning, right? Whether it's Alabama football or the New England Patriots or the San Antonio Spurs. The term heat culture right here in this town, right? But, you know, I, I think it's just something that you come up with after somebody has success. I, I mean, the Cincinnati Bengals went to the playoffs under Marvin Lewis, but we saw that meltdown a couple of years ago at the end of the Pittsburgh game, right? Montez, Perfect, and and Adam Jones. and I, They didn't necessarily have a great culture, but they were still able to make it to the playoffs. Now, they didn't go far. They didn't win playoff games, but that culture didn't stop them from going to the playoffs. So, I agree with you, Whittingham. What, what is this elusive culture that you're looking for? I, I, I think it really just comes down to winning. And whether, you know, you, you get a bunch of uh, personal fouls and, and, and offsides and all that stuff when you're winning or or whether you don't, if you're winning, I think you're probably more likely to say we have the culture that we're looking for.
0: Well, I think we talk about culture when you don't have elite players sometimes. I mean, you, you mentioned the Miami Heat. Nobody was really talking about heat culture when they started eleven and thirty last year. but when they rallied to go thirty and eleven in the second half of the season, then it was a testament. To Heat culture and the fact that this was a group that wasn't going to give up because the, the the Heat just don't operate that way. But look, if a franchise is going to sort of apply the culture tag to itself, I mean the Heat clearly would be the one down here that has the right to do that. And and, and but really Heat culture that they've talked about is because they 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 don't have a big three anymore <laughs> and and so they needed to sort of reinvent themselves you know as something different. And it's an organization that you know is the hardest working and and you know plays the hardest and all of that. That's the culture that they can talk about and they've created. But with football coaches, you know, again, with the Dolphins, I've heard this so many times. I mean, go back to Parcells coming in in 2008. And I remember on the big board behind, you know, in the in the auditorium, it was smart, tough, disciplined, right? Like those were the players. That they were going to bring in. And, you know, and basically what happened was that first year, yeah, they brought in a smart Chad Pennington and he had a really good year and they played a lot of bad teams and they won a lot of close games. Um, and they went 11 and 5. And Tom Brady was hurt that year. And so they won the division. And then we saw that all that smart, tough dif- discipline stuff didn't work when you didn't have any speed on the outside, which is what they didn't have with the types of players that they drafted. And, and also, of course, they, you know, they decided to hook themselves to Chad Henny instead of Matt Ryan as their quarterback. I mean, the culture thing. We've been through it so many times, and and I think that the Landry part of this is what really makes it ring hollow because I I think – you can make an argument about Ajayi with culture, right? Because clearly Ajayi wasn't mm-hmm. wasn't happy about about his carries. You know, they were left behind before they you know they went to, out to Seattle that year. That I can understand. You talk about okay, you don't want someone like that who's out for himself. But Landry's mistakes, okay. And, and I was not in favor. I mean, Chris and I did a podcast on this. I was not in favor of paying him north of of four, uh, fourteen million, but uh, as a slot receiver but to make it an argument based on you know what he brought from a his his fire and and, and what that led to i think that's the wrong way to look at this, because to me, the Dolphins have needed more players like that, not less uh, more players who, as Chris says, play close to the edge. And, and so that that's why I have an issue with the way that this is being framed. Now, I want to ask you guys, because as we're doing this podcast, the news has come out this morning that the Dolphins are going to sign Albert Wilson, formerly of the Chiefs, to replace Landry, to work in the slot for what appears to be you know something close to eight million dollars a year. I mean we have to see what the guarantees are. What do you think of, of this signing perk and, and, and for no additional charge so learn to make time for what makes you happy with better help visit betterhelp.com slash miami heat today to get 10 percent off your first month again that's better help com slash miami heat do you, do you think i mean they'll, they'll do a lot of the same things they did with landry i think maybe they, they involve other players here in the offense
1: i think it's a, it's a- Good signing it's um supposedly three years for 24 million dollars and so you know that this is a guy a, a local kid went to port st lucie high school but you know at five nine, two hundred 200 pounds he will be the a slot receiver and, and we'll see what he has to offer we we know that he's not going to equal jarvis landry or or be a straight one for one replacement and average 100 receptions a year but he's acquired to be part of the solution to replacing Jarvis Landry. So I have no problem with it. We'll wait and see how he fits into the big picture. To me, you have to get Albert Wilson, the uh, slot receiver, and then probably another tight end to replace Jarvis. And so uh, we'll see. I, I I think it's a good step. It's something that on its own, you can't say, eh, that's thumbs up or thumbs down. It's part of the process. So you get Albert Wilson in. You get a tight end. Ed Hickson's name from Carolina has, has been mentioned. Looks like Deion Sims might be taken loose from Chicago. Our old friend Deion Sims. But it, it, to me, it's going to be a two-player replacement for for uh, Jarvis Landry. And if Wilson does his share of the of the workload then I will credit Tannenbaum and and Gase and Greer for replacing him. But I'm, I'm not going to look at what Wilson does at the end of the year and say, boy, he did not do what Jarvis did. He's only part of the equation.
2: There are only parts of the equation in replacing Jarvis Landry because he took up 160 targets last year. That is an astronomical number that only the very best receivers in the league were able to get anywhere near last year, 160 targets. So last year, Albert Wilson in Kansas City had a little over, I think, 60. So this is only going to be divvied up amongst all the replacements. You mentioned tight end, another name that actually came off the market in the taping of this podcast. We're taping on a Tuesday morning and the signings are coming thick and fast. Trey Burton was linked to the Eagles tight end with a potential move here. He's gone to Chicago for four years, $32 million. And to me, the thing that comes with the Albert Wilson signing and that comes with any free agent signing is that you never feel like you get value. And I feel like Albert Wilson, three years, $24 million, it's decent. But again, it's kind of the same as Andre Branch and Kiko and Kenny Stills. You're not necessarily going out and trying to find maybe a college receiver that can you know execute this role pretty decently. You get him with a mid-round pick and pay him I would love for the Dolphins to have tried that, but obviously they wanted a bit more security. I can understand it from Adam Gase's point of view. So they go and get Albert Wilson. Decent signing. I thought he actually played well against the Dolphins this past year, not even knowing what his numbers were in that game. I just remember him making a few plays and, and having some impact. So I think it's a decent signing, but not ultimately amazing value. Well, and I think
0: the thing it brings up here, we're going to get into Mike Tannenbaum here in a second, but uh, it, it brings up Leonte Carew. And and if Leonte Carew had developed here over his first couple seasons, the way that a player that's drafted in the third round and, and took three picks to get should develop, then maybe you don't have to spend money in free agency on a Landry replacement, even if you're spending about half of the money that Landry was going to get. So I I think it speaks a little bit to Carew's lack of development. We'll have to see what happens now with Jakeem Grant, and and if what we saw at the end of the season, when they finally unleashed him, you know, is real, and and they can make him a real player in the offense. All right, guys, let's get to number three here, as we evaluate sort of what the Dolphins are doing here at the very beginning of free agency, and let's look at Mike Tannenbaum. Chris and I devoted an entire podcast to Tannenbaum, but That was before these recent decisions on Sue and and Landry were made. And the Sue contract, I mean, Tannenbaum was here for that. The Landry draft pick, he was not, that was not his pick. That was Dennis Hickey's pick. Ajayi also taken before, um, before Tannenbaum came in and the way that I I would frame this we talk about culture change uh, ultimately the Dolphins need to have better players I mean that's you know then they've gotten during Mike Tannenbaum's era era, particularly in free agency how do you think that what's happened so far reflects on him perk and and do you trust him I mean he as you said they've got a lot more money to spend I mean since they're not allocating to Landry and because they're cutting Sue loose and we'll have to see what happened with a couple of other guys as we record this but uh, do you trust him to spend the money correctly
1: no, because, <laughs> I mean, you know, this, this, this is like turning somebody who has bad spending habits loose with a credit card and Nordstrom or something. I mean, you know that Tannenbaum's tendencies has been to, to overspend and go for the glitzy, glamorous, high dollar product as opposed to being smart and judicious with the money. And so that's kind of the fear that, that you have if you're a Dolphins fan as you look into this off season when who knows how much the Dolphins could have? They they could have $26, dollars, depending on on what happens with with another you know one or two of the players that's currently on the roster. But to me, that that's one of the big things, and we're going to talk about the the roster as a whole later on. But look, you could be going into this season with uh, and and this isn't Tanenbaum's fault, but you could be going into this season with with uh, nobody from the 2013 or 2014 drafts on your roster. From 2015, you might only have Devontae Parker, Jordan Phillips, and, and Bobby McCain. And so what this becomes is because you've drafted poorly, and again, that's not all Mike Tenenbaum's fault, but you get into this cycle of you have to patch things up in free agency, and we all know what ha- happens when you do that. You're basically renting high-priced players, such as Ndamukong consume because a, if they fulfill their, their uh, expectations, they're going to price themselves out of your price range for their next contract. Or B, if they don't fulfill your expectations, such as Julius Thomas, who wasn't a free agent but traded but an uh, acquisition, but you're, you're going to end up having to part ways with them. And it's, it's just a train to nowhere.
2: You're not going to get the best value, and you're going to end up paying for it at some point in some way. And that, for me, is the biggest concern right now with me and Mike Tannenbaum. As you look back at his Jets years, he left the Jets with mistakes to clean up, and he left left the Jets with a pretty long-term rebuilding project. And that, for me, is the thing that right now... If I am the Dolphins, and if you didn't have an owner who wanted to win now, if you just kind of looked at their roster right now, you looked at their salary situation this year and next year, what would you do? You would cut your losses on your mistakes. Right, you'd you'd serve out the final years of Andre Branch and Kiko Alonso's deal and say, all right, we'll we'll, we'll just get on with them playing at that position and we'll move on from them next year. And to me, right now, the Dolphins are staring at a rebuild because you're looking at a roster that does not have dynamic talent at really any position other than safety, and that's not exactly the best place to have dynamic talent. And I think what the Dolphins are going to end up doing is chasing their mistakes. They're going to be like a sports gambler that bets on the University of Hawaii game because it starts at midnight after all the other games have already been played you're down a thousand dollars on the day but damn it I'm gonna throw two thousand on the Warriors to get me back the money that they've lost throughout the day that is who I think the Dolphins are gonna end up being over the course of these next few weeks is trying to chase their mistakes trying to fix them with another signing and another signing and that is the work of people who are worried that they're gonna get fired and that they need to demonstrate some sign that that you know that they are actually a playoff team or that they are are actually you know uh, relatively close to winning i don't think the dolphins are relatively close to winning right now and they need to cut their losses yeah, let me jump in here on that too, because I mean, we, we
0: talk about uh, where they are in terms of roster. We're going to get into this a little bit uh, later, but they, they don't, as you mentioned, they don't have blue chip players. Um, and we can talk about Sue and Landry and that they cost too much. And, and I've made the argument on both that both of them cost too much. Um, you know, that you, you can't pay a guy who's averaging sub ten yards a catch, you know, sixteen million dollars a year. You can't pay a guy at Ndamukong Sue's position when you've got you know a low ranked run defense during the time that he was here. You can't pay him the kind of money that sue was making but i mean those were three guys that if you were to say okay who were the dolphins five most important players before last season those three guys would have been on the list and and as you mentioned chris now it's basically you know rashad jones i mean that's you know and cameron wake at his at his advanced age i mean those are the players we're talking about uh in addition to mike pouncey who, who can't practice because you can't trust him to stay healthy so they don 't have blue chip players, and, as you mentioned, Chris, when that happens, you end up chasing those players. I hope for the dolphin 's sake that by the time the people are if they 're listening to this podcast sort of a week later than we 're recording it that Tannebaum has not gone crazy in free agency that he 's not committed long term money to guys that he's given out contracts that will be easy to get out of because you're not going to get better than six or seven wins with what they've put together right now simply by adding you know free agents and the other thing about free agents is, and and this is the reason that if you look at Green Bay's philosophy over the years, and I know Ted Thompson's not there anymore, but Green Bay went years without adding a free agent. I mean, year after year after year. I mean, they added Julius Peppers, but before that, that was Ted Thompson's thing. I mean, his whole team was the draft. You go back to the Colts in the Super Bowl under Bill Polian. I think it was like something like 21 of 22 starters they drafted. That's the way to build a winning organization. You just plug holes for the time being in free agency. So, again, I hope for the Dolphins fans' sake that Tannenbaum does not spend like crazy this time. And he actually saved some of that money. All right. Now, whereas Mike Tannenbaum has been here a little bit longer than Adam Gase. Adam Gase has had an interesting two seasons in Miami goes 10 and six, looks like the savior goes six and 10. Then there's some questions about sort of how he's, he's running that locker room and what direction they're going in. And, and perk, the the thing that strikes me about this is that the reports that have come out, that Gase wants more of his guys, that this isn't so much about Tannenbaum, but it's about Gase getting the right players for his locker room And for his system, if that's the case, and he has more of his players this year, should there be more pressure from the outside applied on Adam Gase in terms of where this franchise is going?
1: Yeah, I I definitely think so, because this franchise has his fingerprints all over it. And we'll see if this year becomes a referendum on do you keep Gase or Tannenbaum if things are disappointing. I think it probably would. You would probably have to make a choice if they have a disciplined season. Now, if they have a good season, I think Adam Gase's stock shoots right back up to where it was after the 2016 season. And uh, instead of looking at 2016 as the aberration, perhaps we look at 2017 as the aberration. And Adam Gase would get credit for that. But yeah, I, I think that this is a huge year for Adam Gase. And I think one thing that's going to be interesting is going to be in the draft. Does this team take a quarterback in the first round, or is there a feeling, hey, we were 6-10, and we can't afford to have our first-round pick not see the field this year, and so perhaps they go for a pass rusher or or some other high-impact position. Uh, Well, high-impact from the standpoint he'll be on the field next season and not sitting behind Ryan Tannehill. But, you know, there's been a feeling that if the Dolphins, take a uh, quarterback in the first round, then they kind of are, you know, looking ahead and planning ahead and, and, uh, you know, either Gase or Tannenbaum, perhaps both, perhaps including Chris Greer, they feel they have a little more time. If they take the high impact position, the guy who's going to be on the field this year, then perhaps they feel we've got to make an impact this year right now and perhaps that would be an indication that they feel that the clock is ticking.
2: You mentioned Tannehill, and he comes up a lot in the context of what the Dolphins should do over the course of their future, but in the terms of their immediate future, their next season, I think – what everyone can kind of say is, is that if Ryan Tannehill comes back and is even the same guy that he was before, and they have even a decent season, you can just say, "Well, last year was a blip because we lost our starting quarterback a month before the season." I do think that Adam Gase can regain his credibility if this Dolphins offense looks really good again, and Ryan Tannehill looks really good again. So, I, I or looks, you know, as as good as he's played over the course of his five years with the Dolphins. So, I think when we talk about the culture shifts earlier. This is again the same problem that we sort of come upon every time the Dolphins are changing coaches and front office people. Is they they want to you know get rid of the old and get in with theirs. And so I think if these Landry and Sue dealings are another example of that, and there were reports yesterday that Adam Gase was never really that big of a fan of Indomik and Sue's contract in particular and what it did with in, in the context of the team. If that really is the case, then this is another example of. The Dolphins wanting to make changes based off of individuals rather than that organizational culture that we talk about. And to me, if there is a culture change required, the culture change is stop relying on the intuitions of individuals and create something that's bigger than them, an organizational structure. And the Dolphins just don't do that. And
0: I think the question will be now, you know, as they go into the draft, you know, is is about the quarterback with Gase, because, uh, look, I I mean, Perk, I think you hit it. If they end up taking a quarterback in the first round or even the second round, and that quarterback is the guy who's being groomed for the future, I think it buys Adam Gase more time, because even as much as he may like Ryan Tannehill, and he's repeatedly stated that, and I know both of you guys have talked about that in terms of, you know, sort of overseeing or observing his reaction to Tannehill, that it's very positive, but Tannehill was not a guy that he drafted. So, I mean, if he is a quarterback whisperer and that is the reputation that he came to Miami with and that was the primary reason that he got hired, then I, I think them taking, say, a Baker Mayfield or a Jackson or, or any of these quarterbacks in the first or second round buys Gase a little bit more time to sort of move forward with that guy, because I, I can't see Steve Ross wanting to change things. After one year of Adam Gase working with that young quarterback, even if that young quarterback is not the starter this year, even if Tannehill is the starter, I would think that Steve Ross would make the argument that Adam Gase deserves time to work with him. And again, Adam Gase has a five-year contract, so there are three more years left on it. I do think if there's pressure on Gase, I think it's going to come more from the fan base, more so than from ownership. Uh, It's clear to me just in observing social media that a lot of the fans uh, got a little bit tired of Adam Gase's act last season, and and that was sort of a sense that Gase was blaming players, um, not taking responsibility himself, and that never goes over well with the fan base. You know, when, when Gase you know was singling out whether it was a Jai or sort of making intimations that maybe Landry was a problem and others, the fans didn't take too kindly to that. And, and we've seen with previous Dolphins head coaches that you can really get yourself in trouble there. All right, let's get to number five here in the podcast, uh, five things that we've evaluated when it comes to the Dolphins. And this is sort of an overall roster look right now. And as we're talking on the pod, um, already something has happened today. Cody Parkey, who kicked well for the Dolphins last year, has signed with Chicago. So there's going to be a lot more player movement over the next few days, and, and I think That move speaks to something that we're going to get into here in this part, which is that the Dolphins just have so many holes. I mean, we've addressed some of them here on the podcast already. But ultimately, if this franchise is going to go anywhere, it's not going to come from what they do during this free agency period. It's going to be how they draft. And so, you know, we haven't talked about Chris Greer at all, but, you know, they've struck, you know, I wouldn't say gold with some recent players, but they they found guys who look like they're going to be core players uh, going forward, whether it's Tankersley, you know, Xavier Howard came on a little bit at the end of last season. Kenyon Drake really came on. At the end of last season, we saw some flashes from Shaquem Grant once he got a chance. So I guess I'll go to you on this first perk. Do you see future stars on this roster right now? Is there, is there any—we I mean, talk about Landry and Sue being gone, and they don't really have a lot of blue-chip players. Do they have any future stars on this roster? I mean, who's going to be leading this thing going forward? Because I, it may not be Ryan Tannehill, and, and I don't see a lot of obvious candidates on the roster
1: there is not a single future star among the, the current draftees that are on the roster. I'm including Charles Harris, the number one pick last year, Laramie Tunsell, the number one pick in 2016, although, you know, let's give Tunsil a chance. Devontae Parker, the number one pick in, in 2015, we don't know about Jawan James, the number one pick in 2014. And so you, you keep going down the, the list. And again, they could be in a situation where they open training camp with nobody from the drafts of 2013 and 2014 on the roster. The only players on the roster from the draft of 2015 could be Devontae Parker, Jordan Phillips, and Bobby McCain. So that, as you say, the, the whole thing with this team is you don't draft well, and then you don't get those players on second contracts, and you end up doing so much patchwork in free agency. Something has got to change. Everybody knows it all starts with the draft, and that's what's going to be so important about this regime trying to, trying to stay together, the trio of Gase, Greer, and Tannenbaum, and, and being able to progress at a decent financial clip because spending all this money in free agency gets you nowhere. You have to get cheap labor in the NFL, and that comes through the draft.
2: Yeah and for me when when you look at the current crop of of players that are young that you could feel are slotted into into positions there're only 2 that have performed at a star level at any point in their career, much less you know over, over a sustained point of time. They, for me, are Xavier Howard, who had that kind of two-game stretch last year where he had two interceptions in both games against Denver and New England. That New England performance is one of the best Dolphins performances in all of last year. And then Kenyon Drake, who I thought, since he took over the job full-time after Damon Williams got hurt, I thought performed at, a, at close to a star level. And I think if he continues on that trajectory, he can be one of the better running backs in the NFL. NFL. But outside of that, Cordray Tankersley, Laramie Tunsil you mentioned. People were excited about Jesse Davis. I didn't see it. You you look at any of the receivers, no tight end emerged. Pass rush was among the worst in the league, bottom 10 in sacks. There just wasn't anybody last year who you felt all right, this is a guy who we feel like at their respective position can be a star-level talent. And if that's the case, then the Dolphins need to do some serious reconsideration about what it is they're doing in player acquisition, be it free agency, be it the draft, whether it's to get more draft picks, to give yourself more chances to try and do this. But right now, this is a talent threadbare roster and so yeah they might have they might have decent players all over the field right like just guys that are okay but no impact players on the roster at the moment for me outside of Rashad Jones and like I said maybe if they can you know turn it into regular form Xavier Howard and Kenyon Drake.
0: And that's why uh, you got to look at the other teams around them, too, and see where those teams are. And, you know, you look at what Buffalo's doing here over the past week. I mean, it's pretty clear the Bills are putting themselves in position to get their franchise quarterback of the future. And the rest of their roster is better than the rest of the Dolphins roster. So, I mean, it's not just about the Patriots in your division, but it's also a Buffalo team that seems to be better run right now than what the Dolphins are. And that's something
2: you're going to have to deal with in your division. Can I, can I, can I ask you, uh, so what the Cleveland Browns are doing, right? So they traded for Tyrod Taylor, they traded for Landry. They have five picks in the first two rounds, including one and four. Do you think that they're move to trust the process is going to work out for them and do you think this is something that other NFL teams should do?
0: I think a lot of other teams will look at it and it's interesting that in both situations that this has happened in the two leagues uh, whether it's Sam Henke in Philadelphia or Sashi Brown in Cleveland that the guys who did this are not around to finish the job, right? They're not around for the pivot because the fans and the organizations are just not going to be patient enough so uh, it takes an organization that first thing is really downtrodden at the time and, and that was the case with Cleveland but second, you, know, you almost have to assume that somebody else is going to be making the pivot and bringing in those players. And and even when you look at what's happened in Cleveland so far with as much money as they invested in three players on one day, including Landry, they still have the most money, as we speak now, of all the other NFL teams. And they still have, even though they gave up draft picks, still have a ton of picks. So I do think other teams are going to be looking at it. And I think what we're seeing with the Dolphins right now, and it's a little bit similar to what the Heat are doing in this sense, is that the Dolphins you know, seem to be trying to sort of patch things through the middle they're in a lower middle than the heat are but they're not going full rebuild and we see that uh with with the signing of albert wilson today that they're still going to try to patch up some of these holes in free agency i just wonder with the dolphins a couple things one where are the stars that's going to come from on this roster and as you mentioned I, I don't think that that's really obvious right now and the second thing is what are you going to do with quarterback because we talk about ryan Tannehill, and one of the things we've said about ryan Tannehill is he has to have talent around him he can't necessarily elevate players they have to help elevate him and if he doesn't become a player that can elevate the players around him do they have enough on offense now that they've now taken away a receiver that he trusted so much in Landry so I mean to me on paper we'll have to see what happens in the draft but it looks like I mean six and ten may even with Tannehill coming back I mean that might be a high-end outcome all right thank you for joining us on the five reasons podcast we always appreciate Chris Perkins insight you can find him at at chris perk on twitter also you can find him on 790 the ticket he's on at four o'clock just about every day he will leave us now to go chase some news go back through our library you'll find many recent episodes including one with uh, with jason leisure where he talks about how much he loves uh cody parkey who is now uh, signed with the chicago bears so jason will be very sad today uh, we will have another episode coming up later this week have a great day